Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of the Evangelicals Podcast. I'm Jonathan, and I'm without Jeremy today. As today's podcast was actually recorded last week, I had the opportunity to attend a conference in Chicago entitled Reconstructing Evangelicalism. One of the keynote speakers of the conference was Dr. Kristen DeMay, who is the author of the book Jesus and John Wayne. I find Dr. DeMay to be really a compelling intellect. She's a faithful Christian. She's a professor at Calvin University, and she said that I could share our conversation with all of you. And so here it is, my conversation with Dr. Kristen DeMay. I hope you enjoy it. So I'm here with Dr. Kristen DeMay, who many of you may know is the author of Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, Dr. DeMay, thank you so much for just for being willing to be generous in conversation and talk today. I want to start by just talking a little bit about your own upbringing. So you have said that you're not an evangelical. However, anyone who reads your book would just see and understand that you you smell it. I mean, you see it. You're, it's almost as if you're living in it. So can you just talk a little bit about your own um, love for your own Christian community and church, but kind of how you distinguish yourself from an evangelical? Sure. I, um, you know, when I'm asked, are you an evangelical or not, it's always tricky because it all depends on the definition. So I belong to the Christian Reformed Church, a longtime member, and uh, that is a member of the National Association of Evangelicals. So it's not incorrect to call me an evangelical. That said, I never identified as an evangelical. Growing up, I was Christian Reformed, right, in this Dutch Reformed ethnic enclave. My dad is a professor of theology, an ordained minister, and we always identified ourselves very distinctly as Dutch, as Reformed, as Calvinist, and as not evangelical. Wow. Those were the other guys. Um, we thought that we were better and smarter than evangelicals. <laughs> Which is so interesting. So I grew up as a Wesleyan, mm -hmm. and we did understand ourselves to be a part of um, broader evangelicalism, particularly because, as you write at length about our most famous evangelical as Nazarenes, James Dobson, he was, his father was a Nazarene minister and he, you know, went to P Pasadena, as you know, in your book. Mm -hmm. um, his son actually went to Olivet Nazarene, which is my alma mater. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, but we also would spend time kind of making fun of those other evangelicals, <laughs> right? Who are there, um, they're more, more Calvinist, you know, they, they see the world very simply kind of in black and white terms. Can you, can we just talk a little bit before talking about your book, kind of about the popular distinction and maybe some of the problems between, so, so when I hear someone say that they're Calvinist, at least the version of Calvinism growing up, um, what that means is they believe more in kind of this lack of human freedom because of the tulip kind of fixed nature of the universe and that God is um, maybe predestining or um, how do you, how do you understand yourself kind of in that caricature and, and that, that conversation? Yeah, I, um, so I, I grew up yeah, as a Dutch Calvinist um, and I never heard of tulip until I was quite old. Like we don't use that as a, uh, my branch of Calvinism. Again, we're smarter, we're a little better. And so we don't, <laughs> we don't reduce it to that at all. And I was taught um, this, this, Kind of Calvinism from especially my professors at Dort when I was there in the 90s and um, these professors were Dutch Canadians who had um, 
it, it left the Netherlands after the Second World War. You know, they had experienced Nazi occupation, and they did not have a nationalist understanding of religion okay. generally. And they had a very kind of positive understanding of Calvinism and mixed with continental philosophy. It was not um, a focus on predestination. It was much more a focus on um, all of life needs to be redeemed and brought towards shalom. Every aspect of life. So this whole every square inch, Abraham Kuyper phrase that you may have heard, um, you know, that was really seen in a positive way, not in a in a domineering way. It's, you know, how do you be a faithful farmer? How do you be a faithful plumber? What does it mean to be a faithful historian? How do we respond obediently to God's call in all areas of life? And that's why it was a tradition that really emphasized the disciplines, right? Liberal arts, the um, like you aren't faithful just by being a minister or a missionary. Uh, in every aspect, you can um, you can be faithful by by doing good work and by doing it in the direction that honors and glorifies God. So that's my Calvinism, um, and so I was a little bit surprised when. In the 90s, you know, Calvinists kind of were having a moment, and it was the, the new Calvinist movement, and yes. John Piper, and I was like, yes, good for us, right? And then um, then it didn't take me long before I realized, oh, these aren't really my guys. Like, there's no place for me in my kind of Calvinism, and for me as a woman, in those spaces. And I think that's kind of the background of, of some of this book as well, that I am a Calvinist, and I know that there are other ways to hold these um, doctrinal commitments that don't reinforce patriarchy and and don't find expression in the kind of militancy. So that's so helpful for me because when I hear Calvinism, exactly what you just described, I hear about these new Calvinists, I hear John Piper, these people who don't have any respect or regard for women speaking. And there was this whole thing about women can't even teach in seminary because that would assume then this position of authority oh, yeah. over men and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so for me, uh, uh, I always... I feel like I'm still trying to get away from the stereotypes that I received in my undergrad late night arguments with people who claim to be Calvinist, you know, arguing back and forth about freedom and all these things and the mind of God as if we, you know, understand it, you know. So I want to talk, I want to talk about your, your book and, and your more present work. Um, toward the end of your book, in your conclusion, you say something that I think is now you would say you're a historian and you're doing descriptive work. You say you're not doing for the most part. Yes. So, so, but I, when I read this line, I found it to be particularly um, prophetic and theological and instructive to me as a pastor. Okay. And so I just want to, I want to read this line and talk about it uh, for a second. So you say um, from the start, evangelical masculinity has been both personal and political. In learning how to be Christian men, evangelicals also learned how to think about sex, guns, war, borders, Muslims, immigrants, the military, foreign policy, and the nation itself. And when I, it was when I got to that point in the book that I thought to myself, this is what she has just done, is she has just ex- kind of helped us to see essentially the approach to spiritual formation that has been happening in evangelicalism over the last 100 years, which I think makes this a little bit different than um, a lot of the other books. So I've been, um, I've been working with William Trolliger at the University of Dayton, who um, he, he kind of, he has a critique of evangelicalism, particularly fundamentalism. And we've, so I've been reading a lot of stuff. And that's kind of, I think how your book is a little bit different to me, mm-hmm. is that you do speak as someone 
who is who seems to be concerned with the nuances of spiritual formation. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the the question is, and you just at the end of your book, you give a little paragraph maybe that is suggestive. But I think that one of the so one of the questions is, you know, um, I heard Ben Shapiro. He uh, he had this little piece about you, kind of railing against, <laughs> which I'm sure I'm sure you have heard or you're aware of. I have heard. It's been a while since I listened to it. Yeah. Well, he just he just says, you know, that you're kind of attacking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Judeo-Christian idea of masculinity. Yeah. But but really, as I read Judaism, <laughs> as I read the words of Jesus, um, these things that you talk about, sex, war, borders, immigrants, um, we haven't been spiritually forming people in a way that is either Christian or Jewish. And I don't know if you want to just talk a little bit about that and maybe I know that you're a historian, mm-hmm. but maybe talk about something um, suggestive or constructive. So our audience on this podcast typically is evangelicals and evangelical pastors. Mm-hmm. What are some maybe some um, some guidance that you would give or maybe some pointers, some directives on how we could start to turn our understanding of, of masculinity? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I write as a historian, but um, I uh, – yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious in what religion is and how uh, – how people are discipled, if you want to use Christian language, um, how ideas of um, faithfulness are formed, right? What does it mean to be a Christian man? Um, that's a process. And if you're a historian, you know that that changes over time. Mm. That looks very different in different contexts and um, different ethnic groups, different social classes, different time periods. It really does. And so that gives us a curiosity to um, examine, okay, what are people saying right now? which people and how are they defining Christian masculinity? And the thing is, when people are talking about masculinity, and it's not just evangelicals, most people are acting as though it's a static concept and it doesn't even need exploration or definition. We all know what it is to be a man, right? You know, so um, what historians will do is say, actually, no, we don't, right? It's changed dramatically over time. And um, with respect to Christian constructions of masculinity, you do have the Christian scriptures. Right, and so that's one thing that I can do as a scholar, knowing that Christians have interpreted those scriptures in various ways over the centuries, uh, and knowing that evangelicals uphold the authority of the scriptures and define themselves as Bible-believing Christians, then I can I can kind of look at the scriptures and say, okay, which parts are really significant for you right now? And when it comes to masculinity, it was not the Jesus of the Gospels except for when he turned the tables of the money changers. Brief little moment there. Otherwise, it was the Jesus of Revelation, right? This this warrior God. Uh, it was not the Jesus who said, turn the other cheek. Yes. Love your neighbor, right? And so, um, so what do I do as a historian? I just tell that story. And now it's up to the reader, wherever their position, to say, you know, ideally Christians will, will read this book and then go back to the scriptures, Say, let me see it with fresh eyes. Let me, what have I been emphasizing, maybe um, overemphasizing? What have I been neglecting? And how might I have to rethink my understanding, my inherited understanding even of quote unquote Christian manhood? And I think that's how this book can function for Christians. That, yeah, that's, that's so helpful. Uh, so another dynamic that I just think is interesting, which I've heard you touch on, but um, even in our correspondence prior to this conversation that you said is a topic that interests you and you may write on it is in, in evangelicalism and in our, just in American society right now of consumerism, 
uh, the mega personality that sells tends to be the one with power, mm-hmm. right? The one at the end of the day, um, yeah, with, with power and influence. I think that's what I will say. And what's interesting is by writing this book about power, you now find yourself in a position where you're invited to speak alongside of these other yes. really powerful evangelicals. And what I think is kind of interesting, um, you can tell me if I'm stepping, <laughs> stepping into too much here or uh, put me in my place if you need to. But I think in some ways it seems to me that you're being invited because it, as if like, well, if, if the one who critiques evangelicalism is here, then what we, then who we are must not be that bad or something like that. Maybe, and maybe that may be an overanalysis on my, well, it's just interesting. Like you are actually by virtue of all that you've sold. And, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you're not a great historian, but like, do you know what I'm saying? Like there's this, this space that you step in as a powerful person. Can you just, can you just talk about your thoughts on like power and the, uh, the, um, the what kind of what's selling uh and and just the the power of the market right now and how it intersects with your work and evangelicalism yeah i mean you're right to observe this and it's been kind of wild to to experience this because i wrote about power and these power dynamics inside evangelical spaces as an outside observer and now that the book has um had the impact it has and continues to have i i'm invited into these spaces I get to chat with Russell Moore and with Walter Kim, and we do things together. And you know, I um, my inbox is filled with really interesting people. And um, you know, there's access. There is the power that comes from being a best-selling author. I what I can say is I um, I wrote about power, and I tried to track it, tried to understand it in the book. I understand it so much better on this side of things. Mm. And um, I can say it's fun. It's really fun to be invited to have the access. I enjoy it. Um, it's also it doesn't feel uh, it has not yet um, become normal for me. So I still feel like a tourist in these spaces and uh, less kind of a tourist. And also, right, I'm a researcher. I'm still a researcher, so I just can't believe I have this access to the inside kind of stories in a lot of places. And so many people, whether they're famous or not, want to tell me their stories, which I mean, even when I come to conferences, I stick around and I talk with people. I talk with pastors, with just ordinary folks who who have stories to tell so that I keep learning and I keep learning about the dynamics of these spaces. Um, so it's been a real privilege and I, I, I do not take that for granted. It's... Um, it's also, yeah, it's it's been odd to experience kind of low-grade celebrity in these spaces that have functioned for so long um, around celebrity. And um, to, and I've, I've pointed to the weaknesses of it, right? And, and also just to the way this works in these spaces, like even something like small groups and church book clubs, right? It's a given. Um, now, outside of evangelical spaces, I, my editor didn't know what a small group was, right? He's like, what? what? How small is this group? You know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, let me, I had to do a lot of, con- you know, kind of interpreting. Wow, um, yeah. and so, um, and now what that means is that when you have a small group, what do you usually do? You're studying a book, right? Now, if you have thousands of small groups with, uh, you know, half a dozen member in each, uh, that's a lot of books every year and, you know, book a month or a book every two months. Yes. So there is a huge market, um, and there has long been a huge market. Millions of copies of some of these books have sold. Um, you know, who, which evangelical guy in their 30s or 40s or 50s has not read Wild at Heart, right? Now, what that means is that um, even if a small portion of those folks start to rethink some of that, 
um, or want to reassess that. Um, you know, if 1% of the people who, who um, read Wild at Heart by Jesus and John Wayne, that's incredible sales, right? Yeah. And that's kind of what's happening here is that, um, you know, my book is traveling some of those same networks. And it's being discussed in church, um, small groups, book clubs. And um, it's being used by the people who know how to read, who know how to read in groups, who buy books. And so I am now participating in that culture. Um, I don't, I don't even know what to make of it. I'm just, I'm, I'm living it, I'm experiencing it, and I'm, I'm very curious about it. And it's just extremely interesting to me. So can you speak, though, to young to young evangelicals who have grown up in this consumer culture, who really aspire to be like you, or like or like any of the, a number of these authors, to really kind of make it in as a celebrity. Kind of what's can you address kind of the tension though yeah. of of the um, the celebrity that um, how um, maybe these things might go awry. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, I didn't aspire to be like I am now. I I, um, I went to graduate school. I put in a lot of years of really, really hard work. Um, I got a job at a Christian college. Um, I had assumed at that point I was kind of stepping off the, um, you know, uh, the prestigious. I went to Notre Dame, a, a really, you know, yes. top school. Um, and then when it came to a job, I, I decided to teach at a Christian college. And um, so I thought, you know, prestigious academic career was not going to be my thing, uh, which I was totally fine with. Um, I had a couple kids, had had an opportunity to go somewhere more prestigious. At that point, I had two very little kids. And I was like, that's not, not the path I'm going to take. So I, I, I thought actually I was opting, I, I was taking a different different route. Um, at the same time, I was watching people like Rachel Held Evans, you know, kind of build a platform in a in a very good way. And I was watching a lot of um, other writers, you know, have really um, big audiences, especially Christian women writers. And I was researching the history of, of Christian women, right? And, you know, my yeah. first book was uh, a history of Christian feminism um, through a biography um, of uh, a Wesleyan woman, actually. Uh, and so uh, the holiness movement in the 19th century just absolutely crucial backdrop to so much of Christian feminism. And um, I, so I was watching, you know, the kind of the popular side of things and thinking it would be nice if a few more people would read some academic books, but that's just not, you know, I'm, I'm over here putting 10 years into a book and it's just a different life, a different path and a different kind of contribution. So honestly, being in the place I am now where I'm still doing that work, still doing that deeply researched scholarship, but also having a popular audience is, I mean, it's kind of a dream. It's uh, a dream I didn't even know to dream. It's very, it's very unusual. And the path is not, there's no shortcuts to it. I guess that's what I would say. If you're, if you're trying to do this, I guess you have to be willing this kind of work, you have to be willing to work in obscurity for a very long time. Wow. And, um, and without expectation of having this kind of impact. But the thing is, like, there are so many, I drew on so many works of careful, careful scholarship to write Jesus and John Wayne. Um, and I, you know, I can name all sorts of them and the kind of archival research that went into each of those books and the, the editorial process and the review process. And so, 
even if you aren't kind of out there on, on the front lines, your work might be used by other people to, to really enhance the conversation. So anyway, it's, it was a very winding path and this is not at all where I expected to be. So I don't have good advice for somebody setting out who wants to do this except just do the really hard work. Okay, so another question just related to kind of being young, not having much um, maybe power or influence, but also kind of wondering what the trajectory of your life might be. So I look at I look at your life, but my wife and I, we have three, three young kids, uh-huh. you know, and we're um, – she's an accomplished musician in her own right. We, you know, we – Obviously, in, in marriage and parenting, there's a lot of, of give and take. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we spend some of our time you know, asking the questions of what are, what are the most meaningful things that in this season of life we are going to choose to pursue? You know, and I think that my question to you would be, so you're someone who is a parent, a professor, and here we are who we sit in Chicago, yeah. you know, both of us away from families, you know, having this conversation. How do you – just how do you navigate – even as a, just as a Christian, as an author, as a professional, um, in your own family, kind of what are the meaningful things, the, ex- the invitations that you're going to accept, mm-hmm. the ones that you're not going to accept? Just, just for listeners who are young and, and are trying to discern in their own life, what are the things worth pursuing and what are the things, the options that I have that I need to mm-hmm. just maybe say no to? How do you, can you give some advice or wisdom in, in that area? I mean, when, when the kids were, my, my youngest now is nine. And so my kids are at a different stage. Um, it, it was very painful to leave them when they were little. Yeah. Um, two, three, you know, babies. Uh, and yeah. I have stories of, you know, I, I got my first, first book contract by at the AAR when I went there and I was traveling with a six week old. Wow. Right? So it was just the oh. most exhausting time of my life. I think, um, and so, so it's, it's tough, right? It's not all, uh, but, but, and then I, I took the, the slow track. Um, I had super supportive colleagues that um, supported that at, at Calvin. Um, and so by choosing not to go R1, you know, prestigious institution, uh, when I had my first child, one of my colleagues said, you know, Kristen, just so you know, um, when it comes to tenure, when it comes to, you know, your career here, we see an academic life as one of many seasons. And if this season for you is one of focusing on your kids, that is totally fine. I mean, what a blessing that was. Wow. This is from a distinguished wow. senior scholar in the department. And um, so I, I really benefited from that. Now, and then I had another colleague who gave me advice too. It was an almost all male um, uh, department and they were absolutely lovely. And um, many of them have retired by now, but um, another told me, you know, Kristen, you are gonna have to make tough choices. And there are gonna be times that you're away from your kids and it's gonna be really hard. And he was actually the primary caregiver parent. So he had had this um, experience too, but he said, I want you to know, you aren't gonna see this now, but when your kids are older, um, you know, they're going to miss you a lot when you're little and you're gone for a couple of days here or there. Um, when, you, when they're older, you are going to be able to open the world to them in ways that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And I kind of held on to that. I wasn't quite sure what he meant, but I kind of trusted that. And that is absolutely true now. You know, um, my kids are older, um, have a kind of front row seat onto 
um, my life. And they sometimes my daughter, my older daughter, will travel with me. Um, wow. she, we have a standing agreement. Anytime I have a New York City event, she comes along. She's a huge <laughs> Broadway fan. You know, my little one is right now on my laptop. I opened it this morning to do some work quick, and I saw she gets to borrow my laptop, and she's working on a on a short story, and she's all into the editing process, right? Because she's she's watched this play out. This is her life with me. And so I think, yeah, there are different ways to be present as a parent. Time is really important, but then kind of bringing them alongside, and, and it is opening the world to them. Um, so whatever that looks like for you, you know, I think that there are just many ways to, um, to, raise, a, to raise kids. Yeah, it's, um, so, so look for those, you know, give yourself grace, um, find the path that's your path, and um, and then hope for the best. And there's always things that don't work well, you know. Like yeah. there's always there's always days that you're like, oh my gosh, this is impossible. And then other days, like, this is amazing. Okay, so this may seem like whiplash, but going from personal life, kind of back to the historical stuff, and um, you as a as a historian and author. So um, I, I mentioned I'm doing my own my own work and research right now, and I'm finding that there are individuals in history and evangelicalism that I find could be heroes that we lift up, but that were just completely forgotten. So one of these for me was Walter Rauschenbusch. I read a bunch of his stuff, um, you know, but he was completely marginalized. Not only did he die early, but he was, he was, um, uh, his, he was associated with, you know, with communism, with the Red Scare, and the social gospel was just um, completely diminished or relegated. I'm curious, as you've done, as you've done research, uh, so much for Jesus and John Wayne was about uh, evangelicals that are maybe worth forgetting from the record, you know? Um, but I wonder to myself, um, to, to our listeners, is there anyone that you would suggest that you would say, you know what? If you would actually go back and read or be aware of these evangelical voices, maybe popular evangelicalism would look a little bit different today. Are there a couple voices or people that you have found that you've resonated with from the movement that really, for whatever reason, have been yeah. marginalized or put to the side? Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really good question. I um, When I first opened like the first document on what was going to be Jesus and John Wayne, it was, it was um, like almost 20 years ago now. So it was a long wow. time ago um, when I first got this idea. And that document I titled Hero Worship. Um, and that's what I thought I was dealing with, right? I was just like, who are their heroes? And what is this? And there's these, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and William Wallace and all, you know, like what's what's going on here? And, and then I came to see these are all, you know, militant white guys. And, and you know, we kind of went from there and, and the project morphed. But that's a, a really good question because I will get asked sometimes, well, you know, we need our heroes. Right, everybody needs heroes. I'm like, okay, great. Find some different ones, right? Uh, right? These and and there are and 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 that's that's the fun part, and that's what the historical scholarship is like. Go explore. Who have we forgotten? Who should be our heroes? And I mean, the the topic, the subject of my first book, Catherine Bushnell, is a great example of this. And I mean, she's quirky. She's not perfect, but she is amazing, and she devoted her life to working for uh, women, particularly. Um, um, uh, victims of sexual abuse. And she had this uh, international uh, reputation and she wrote uh, a, a kind of new interpretation of the scriptures 
um, which we could call feminist theology, but she identified as a fundamentalist upholding the authority of the scriptures. She was incredible, right? And she was almost entirely forgotten. Uh, another one um, from that era, early 20th century, is Madeline Southard in the Methodist Church. And um, here, she's really interesting because she worked for women's ordination in the Methodist Church. So she, she has wow. some prominence in that respect. But it's she's also amazing because she left um, dozens and dozens of personal diaries. And so you can read her diaries at Harvard University Schlesinger Library, and you can see her as a not kind of most prominent, but fairly prominent um, Christian woman in America at the time, and how she is grappling with the fundamentalist modernist split, how she's trying to hold social activism and gospel Christianity together, how she's struggling with being a single woman when she really wants to be a mother, how she's being treated by male uh, seminary professors when she really wants a theological education, right? These kinds of things. And um, so there are just so many stories there of people who have navigated really difficult circumstances in very faithful ways. And these are both white women because that was kind of the focus of my historical research. I will also say that growing up and well through my undergrad years, um, I had absolutely zero exposure to African-American Christians. Yeah. And so if you wanna look for some incredible Christian heroes, just look to the black Christian tradition and you will find dozens of them. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer, incredible story. Go back, wow. Ida B. Wells. Um, uh, just so many um, figures who, I mean, James Cone. <laughs> read, read some James Cone. Yes, yes. Um, and um, uh, you know, just, just so many voices that were not in any way part of my universe, not any way part of my religious formation. And, you know, what how how is that impoverished my understanding of 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 who God is and who we are Dr. May, you've been so generous uh, just in this busy schedule to just make some time to talk with me. Thank you so much. And uh, I really wish you the best in uh, your career upcoming. And I look forward to more books from you. Thank you so much. Great to chat.